0: Hey everyone, it's Kindle from the Recording Lounge podcast, and on today's episode we're talking about headphones and headphone systems. Now I've had a lot of requests over the last couple of years to do an episode all about this, so we're going to talk about what makes a good headphone system, we're going to talk about headphones, power amps, headphone amps, and how it all flows together. So let's get started. So what makes a good headphone system? Well, to me, there are a couple of major points. First of all, you've got to have clean, clear sound that doesn't distort or clip. So there's a couple of things you can do to make sure that happens, but in general, that's a big priority to me. I want to make sure that the headphones sound great. Um, Number two, we also need low noise. Okay, Noise is a big distraction for performers, for singers especially. You don't want a noisy headphone system. Number three, we've got to have control over all the live inputs individually as well as the foldback or the music coming from the DAW. And, you know, click and talk back and everything. We want control over every single channel. Number four, we want to make sure that clients can hear themselves clearly regardless of what headphones they're using. Number five, we want consistency, repeatability, and reliability for our headphone rig. We don't want to have a bunch of problems. We don't want to have, you know, one day it's working, one day it's not. Number six, we want expandability, meaning we can add to the system over time, and it's not going to be a huge cost to do so. And finally, we want to make sure and have different headphone options available for clients. Now, I feel like all of these things have been pretty well accomplished in my headphone setup, but maybe you don't feel that way about yours. I get a lot of questions about how I run mine, and how I use the power amps, and all of that, and we're going to talk about my whole setup later on, but first, I want to talk about a couple of considerations. Let's talk about headphones. So, there are different types of headphones that we use for audio work. Most of the time, these are either going to be open-back headphones, closed-back headphones or in-ear monitors. Now, open-back headphones are not really suitable for tracking as they have open backs, meaning the sound can escape out the back. However, they do tend to be more accurate than closed-back headphones or in-ear monitors. Something like the Audis LCDX headphones are pretty surprisingly accurate for headphones. Now, they're not cheap, but if you really need some solid headphones for working on audio, editing, mixing, mastering work, definitely check out the Audis headphones. Now, closed-back headphones are probably the most common headphones on the market. They have closed-backs, which isolates them from the rest of the world, allowing you to hear the sound inside the headphones block out sounds from outside. Likewise, us on the outside won't really be able to hear much of what you're hearing on your headphones. There are tons of different closed-back headphones on the market. It's most of the ones you will find. And there's various amounts of isolation you can achieve depending on the design. Some of them are meant for really heavy isolation and others don't have great isolation, but maybe they're more accurate. It's a big compromise in that department. And finally, in-ear monitors are exactly what they sound like. They're small earbuds that go inside of the ear and are typically the best choice for isolation. They block out a lot of outside sound, and when using in-ears, nobody in the room can even hear what's going on. I mean, they isolate really well from both sides. Custom-molded in-ears are definitely the best option for isolation because they provide a ton of isolation that, you know, the, the buds are actually going pretty far down into the ears, and you don't have to turn them up a whole lot because of that isolation, which saves your hearing. Now really quickly, I wanted to talk about headphone impedance. This one is a little tricky to talk about. There are a lot of details that I don't really want to get into, damping factor and all kinds of stuff like that, but I just wanted to give you a brief overview. Typically lower impedance headphones, like 16 ohms, et cetera, down in that region, will generally be a little bit louder and they'll work with almost any device, even like an iPhone output. Higher impedance headphones will generally be a little quieter, however, they can handle more power, and sometimes, again, not always, they will be more accurate or sound better, okay? Um, A common rule of thumb is that you want your headphone impedance to be about eight times the output impedance of your headphone amp. So, for example, if your headphone amp has a two-ohm output impedance, then you want your headphones to be at least 16 ohms. and Most of them are. You won't find many two ohm headphones these days, but some headphone amps do have higher output impedances. For example, you might have a headphone amp with a 32 ohm output impedance, in which case you wouldn't want to use sixteen ohm headphones with that headphone amp. In fact, you would want to use much, much higher because you know 32 ohms times eight is two hundred and fifty-six. So your headphones would need to be up in that region. Now a lot of people will debate this, should you match the impedance, you know, and it's it, it kind of goes back to the same thing with guitar amps. You just don't want your headphone impedance lower than the output impedance of your amp, okay? Think of the headphones as the speaker and the headphone amp as your guitar amp, right? If you're using a 4-ohm output on your guitar amp, you want to use a 4-ohm or higher speaker cabinet. You don't want to use lower. Now, in my experience, for the highest quality sound, I would recommend using higher impedance headphones with a high quality headphone amp. That eight to one rule has proven pretty reliable where the headphone impedance is eight times the output impedance of the headphone amp. And again, typically headphone amps You know, their output impedances might be 2, 4, 8, 16 ohms, something like that. There are cases where a low impedance headphone might be a good choice. Some of the isolation headphones that are meant for, you know, drummers, really loud playing. Some of those have very low impedances in an effort to make them sound louder. But those headphones don't necessarily have amazing sound quality. Maybe not my first choice for a vocalist or something like that. So that's all I'm really going to get into on that topic on this episode. If you want to learn more, there's a great article. Go to Google and type in The Complete Guide to Understanding Headphone Impedance. It's over on a website called mynewmicrophone.com. It's a great article. It has a lot of information, talks about a lot of the myths and confusion around headphone impedances. So if you want to learn more, go check out that article. So next, I wanted to go over some of the headphone models that I have had success with. Now, when in doubt, if a player has custom in-ear molds, I recommend that they use those. They will typically provide the best isolation. It's something that they're familiar with, they know, they use at their gigs or whatever. And they'll generally sound pretty great. Um, Never really had any issues with impedances or anything like that. Now, those are often much more expensive, but for good reason. And if you're a studio player or a session player or a live player, and you do that kind of work all the time, I highly recommend you look into custom-molded in-ears. My personal favorites are the Future Sonics MG6 Pro. They are pretty pricey, but they're amazing in-ears. They've lasted me for, geez, almost a decade now, and I couldn't be happier with them. But I wanted to talk about some of the main over-ear headphones that I use in the studio. First is the Sennheiser HD 280 Pro headphones. These are affordable, they sound pretty good, and they're comfortable. I don't really have much to say about them, clients tend to like them, you know, you can wear them for long hours, and if they get broken, it's not a huge problem because I think they're only about a hundred bucks. Next is the Audio-Technica M50X. These are good sounding headphones, a little bit bright sometimes, but most clients tend to enjoy these. And a lot of home studio people use these as well. They're really popular in home studios. So people are familiar with them, which is actually pretty important to me because even if they're not the greatest sounding headphones, people know them and they're familiar with the sound. So generally speaking, they're a little bit more, you know, it's kind of like instant comfort for them. Like, oh yeah, I know these, these, you know, I feel less weird performing now because I'm familiar with these headphones and I use these at home. For isolation headphones, I really like the Telefunken THP-29 headphones, which are basically just rebranded extreme isolation headphones. Now, these don't sound amazing, but they do provide really nice isolation. It's great for drummers or guitarists, but vocalists and bassists tend to not like them as much because they can be a little thin in the low end and have kind of a mid-rangey sound, and vocalists don't like how their voice sounds in them necessarily. Uh, bassists don't get enough low-end, pianists sometimes are on the line. It depends if they're playing more organ or synth. They might be okay, but if they're playing big grand piano, they probably won't like them that much. And finally, the Biodynamic DT770 Pro. I'm sure most of you know these. These are great overall headphones. They don't have amazing isolation, but it's pretty good. Uh, But really nice for vocalists and really nice for people who want a full wide range kind of beefy headphone sound, like bassists, pianists, things like that. They may not have enough isolation for a live tracking session, meaning like you might have to crank them a little too much. Or they might. It depends how loud the band is, I guess. But overall, these are some of my favorite general-purpose headphones. You know, if I need to do some edits and I need, you know, the band is back there talking and I'm going to put on some headphones, I'll reach for the Beyer DT770 Pro's. Now, I wanted to talk about a couple of headphones that I would personally avoid. This is nothing personal against these companies. I love these companies. It's just these particular models of headphones I have had in the studio are not great, okay? First one is the Biodynamic DT100. So, you see these headphones at some pro studios, and you see people praising them on forums here and there, but quite frankly, they're maybe the worst headphones I've ever heard, especially for $230 dollars. Um, I let a client try some and he described them as unacceptable. <laughs> uh, I was like, he was like, man, these sound kind of weird. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, like unacceptable. I was like, oh, oh, sorry. And I listened to them myself and they sounded terrible. Um, I returned them. I, I-, I couldn't believe how bad they sounded. I-, I mean, it sounded like a wah pedal was on the mix. I mean, I, I-, I possibly could have gotten a bad pair, but they were brand new. I got them direct from Biodynamic, so... I don't know. Uh, The next set is the Sony MDR7506. Now, I might offend some people with this one, but you see these headphones all over the place. In studios, you see people talking about them online. Even big-name guys will talk about mixing with these, but I personally hate them. I think they're harsh, I think they're physically like flimsy, and I think they have pretty mediocre isolation. Um, clients also never really seem to like them. They complain about how they sound. Also, the the ear cup, you know, foam will disintegrate over time and leave like these black foam flakes all over your ears. Honestly, I'm not really sure why they're so popular. I don't like how they sound at all. So that's just a personal preference. And finally, the Vic Firth isolation headphones. Vic Firth is an amazing drum company, and they've made these Vic Firth isolation headphones for drummers for a number of years. They're just not that great sounding, and they're not comfortable. Um, I, they don't isolate as well as the Telefunkins or the Extreme Isolation headphones. And personally, I just think they hurt to wear. Like they're, they, they, The way they fit around your ears is just not that comfortable. Drummers have complained about them hurting their ears, so... I, You know, uh, how can I, how can I ignore that? You know, when my clients are like, these hurt to wear, I'm not comfortable. Uh, so don't make drummers wear these. They don't sound that great. They don't have amazing isolation. Just get the extreme isolation or the telephone can headphones if you need them. So in summary, as I said, I have not tried every type of headphone out there. I'm constantly searching for better options because most musicians, myself included, generally don't like headphones that much. You know, if we had our preference. We would just listen over speakers. I'm always trying to listen to my clients and especially vocalists uh, and see how they're responding to the headphone mixes. Are they happy with them? Do they like how it sounds? I go out into the room and I listen to their mix and I will make you know as unbiased judgment as I can of how those headphones sound. And if after a couple sessions I keep finding that this type of headphone sounds great, and this type of headphone sounds bad, eventually I'll just get rid of the bad headphones because, you know, it only works in a few scenarios. I don't want that. You know, I want headphones that work consistently. So I've had to go through a lot of sets. The ones I mentioned, the uh, Sennheiser HD 280s, the Audio-Technica M50s, the Telefunken THP29s, and the Beyer DT770 Pros, those have stood the test of time for me. I've had multiple sets of those in the studio and... You know, between those four, depending on what player or vocalist is, you know, performing, if we rotate between one of those four, chances are they're going to like one of them. You know, most of the time it's going to be either the Audio Technicas or the Buyers for vocalists and bassists. And for guitarists, they're a little bit less picky, but, you know, one of those four is going to work. Drummers usually are totally fine with the isolation headphones because mostly they need to hear, you know, click and vocal you know what I mean? They don't. They don't necessarily have to have a ton of full, wide range information. Um, you know, they need some. They need the rhythmic elements. They don't necessarily need gobs of like high fidelity. But yeah, it's just something you're gonna have to experiment with. Try some of these out. See which ones work well in your studio. You know, and you know, hopefully you'll find a pair that you like. The next thing I want to talk about is headphone amps. Now, headphone amps are exactly what they sound like. They are an amplifier for your headphones. They take a signal coming out of your computer and amplify it further to drive headphones. Most of the time, the headphone amp included on your interface is just okay. Some are better than others, but most of the time it's nothing fancy, and it's rarely loud enough to handle, you know, recording drums. It's fine for just basic monitoring if you just need to plug in and listen on your headphones real quick. But I would not use those necessarily for performers. So chances are you're going to need to have an external headphone amp. Um, it, it Again, it depends on how loud you need it. But I've experienced it time and time again where people say, they'll email me and say, how come my headphone amp on my Apollo or on my whatever is not loud enough for drummers? And it's like, well, that's what headphone amps are for. Now, there are a lot of headphone amps out on the market, and again, I haven't tried all of them. I can say that you should probably expect to spend a few hundred dollars per channel, meaning per headphone output, right? That good old Behringer PowerPlay that everybody has used for many years, uh, that's not really the type of quality that I would consider acceptable for me. Those tend to be just a step above what's on an interface, and they tend to distort and clip and not really have a great low-end sound, and they're kind of harsh. Again, no offense to Behringer or any of these other companies, it's just like, I've tried them and I haven't had good results, you know? So I would recommend setting your sights a little bit higher, something more like the Rupert Neve Designs headphone amp, or the Little Labs one, or the Grace headphone amp. Now, another route you can take is the route that I took, because I learned this at a studio where I worked for a few years, And that was to use power amps. Yes, that's right, like power amps for PAs. (laughs) Now, you don't have to get something crazy like 1,000 watts or whatever. You really need something that is small, one unit, something like the Crown D75, which is around 35 watts per channel, or the Samson Servo 120, which is, I think, 60 watts per channel. So, amps like this usually have, you know, 4, 8, 16-ohm output impedance, which means you're probably going to be using headphones that are 60-ohm impedance or higher. They'll still work with the others, you know, we've already had that conversation. Now, the reason I recommend these two power amps specifically is that they have a headphone output right on the front. This is like a normal quarter-inch stereo unbalanced headphone output right on the front panel, and that headphone output is padded down. So it's not the full volume of what's going out the back, like what you would run to speakers, it is padded down slightly. Uh, And so that means you can easily connect a headphone right into the front, or you can run it through a TRS snake to another room, which is what I do. So from the headphone amps, uh, I, I have a TRS snake on one side, I run the headphones through that snake, which is a dedicated headphone snake. It's not the same snake as the mic inputs because I've actually had problems with crosstalk on channels where I would get click bleeding into a mic channel. And that's because the signal coming out of the headphone amp is so much louder than what's coming in mic level. And so if you end up cranking up a mic 40 dB, 50 dB that tiny little bit of crosstalk between the channels actually can bleed over. So I do recommend having your own split headphone snake just for headphones, okay? So once they go through that snake, they terminate as XLR. And that then goes to my distribution boxes. The distribution boxes are just essentially a little metal box with a volume knob and a headphone jack. So it goes from the headphone snake to the distribution box... It has a volume knob and a headphone jack. There's nothing fancy about them at all. They're totally passive. One of the most popular versions of this type of box is the Redco Little Red Q box. They're affordable. They take an unbalanced stereo XLR in, and, you know, which is essentially an XLR cable carrying left and right, just like a normal TRS cable that you would use for headphones. And it has volume knobs. It's, it's passive, needs no power, If you're using power amps, they have plenty of volume and you just can plug in your headphones to that. Now, we'll talk about my setup a little bit more sort of in-depth later, but I just wanted to introduce that. So before we get into talking about my personal setup a little bit more, I wanted to talk about some of the headphone systems that are out there. There are a lot of, you know, these pre-packaged turnkey headphone systems for distribution and for mixing out there. Some of them quite expensive, But in many cases, they can be quite good. I like a lot of them. My problem with them is that they're often more geared towards live consoles with tons of I.O. and, you know, digital I.O., not for most of us studio cats that don't have 96 outputs on our interfaces, you know. We don't necessarily use digital in and out. You know, some of the ones that I like, I really like the MyMix system by Movic or Movic. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. The Avium systems have gotten a lot better over the years. They used to be pretty questionable, but they've gotten a lot better. The Hear Technologies Hearback Pro is a cool system. And I like the Allen and Heath systems as well. Now, in Nashville, a lot of the studios there use this whole, like, rolling rack mixer system, which is a really fancy way to go, but it's certainly effective. You know, for players that really know what they're doing, they have faders, they can adjust EQ, panning, they just plug their headphones right into the mixer, which has its own headphone amp. And that's really cool, but again, that's an investment that most of us don't need to make. Like I said, I've used pretty much all of these systems... But in most setups even my own they just aren't reasonable or necessary i also don't necessarily trust clients to make their own headphone mixes all the time you know in fact many cases it can be a big distraction for them it can be a stressor for them to like oh my mix isn't right now it's my fault and you know most of us myself included use an interface some patch bays some gear We don't have a ton of output splits to send to headphone systems where you have to send basically a copy of every input to an output and then run that into a rack unit that then distributes to the, you know. And we don't want to buy additional interfaces or an interface expander just so that we can have all these extra outputs or digital outs like Dante. Again, many of these things are optimized for digital consoles at very large venues and very large studios, you know, specifically geared for that. Right? For example, at Skywalker Sound, there's a person whose job it is to mix headphones for orchestras. I mean, you'd have to, right? Dealing with 60, 70, 80-plus people, that's just too much for the main you know, recording engineer and producer to be messing with. So they have a person just for that. Why wouldn't you, right? It's the same with big touring bands. They have a monitor mixer person on staff, and their whole job is to mix headphones for the band. And they often have their own console just dedicated to that, right? Now, another problem with these types of systems is that they can be time wasters in your session. You have to teach the band how to use them every single time. You know, they're more reasonable for, say, a church band who plays a worship service every Sunday, and they can learn the system over time. And it stays exactly where it is. Things don't change in and out. But in the studio, stuff changes every single session. So for most of you out there, I wouldn't recommend bothering with these systems. You know, if you really want one, if you really think that's the way you want to go, I would recommend the Hear Technologies one because it's probably the simplest and most stripped down version of all these. You know, it's just got a handful of knobs right on the front. You can, you know, it's got scribble strips on there. You can write what channels are what. It's very simple versus some of the others that are like digital menus and you have to go through and go through these deep, you know, button clicks and menu clicks to go to panning, and those can get really complicated. I would recommend, if you want to go that route, going with the Hear Technologies one. But like I said, I don't use one of these, and I do just fine. And I've been doing this a long time, never had any problems with it. Now, someday, it might be a problem. I I I will admit that. Someday, I might have clients that are like, man, I I really need to be able to make my own mix. This is kind of annoying. I haven't had that yet, though. So, you know, most clients, I think, value speed over versatility. I know that sounds odd, but in modern times with modern budgets, if you walk in and your headphone mix sounds great, clients are going to be happy. You know, they might just say, hey, can I you know can I have a little bit more vocal or a little bit more guitar or whatever? But if you can do the work ahead of time, which in my case is kind of already preset, they can really have a great experience from the get-go and just need tiny little tweaks. The other problem with some of these systems is that they can be very expensive. Some of them can be three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars. And that's just, I don't know, that's a lot to spend on something that seems to be more of a hassle than not. So, like I said, for many of you, I wouldn't really bother considering these systems. Now, another question I get is so how are you making headphone mixes in the first place? Right? Like there are basically three ways to make headphone mixes. Number one, you can use an interface that has a lot of outputs, uh, a lot of splits, and you can go to one of these self-contained systems that we just talked about. Number two, you can make them within the DAW from Qsens and auxes and things like that. It's very common for people working in Pro Tools. Number three, you can use a low-latency mixer software like the UAD console or the Lynx in-control mixer, which is what I use. Now, all of these have their pros and cons, but personally, I much prefer the low-latency mixer software route. It's one of the main reasons I went with the Lynx Aurora N, and why so many people love the UAD Apollo console system. On my Lynx mixer, I have a separate mix for each set of outputs. So, 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, 7 and 8. I can click on any of those stereo outputs and make a make a headphone mix, or make a speaker mix, or make a mix, Period. So, for me, I use output 1 and 2, which is for my mix, 3 and 4 is sort of a spare for backbus kind of things, but then outputs 5 and 6, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, 16 are all of my headphone mixes for my clients. Mix A, B, C, D, E, and F, right? So I have six headphone mixes, and I can make an individual mix for each of them. Now, it's important to keep in mind, not all interfaces have software like this, and Personally, I kind of can't believe that's the case in 2021. I mean, it's true, but I really am surprised why so many interfaces out there don't have something like this. My first experience with this was early on when I started and I had a Motu interface. And in that Motu, it had that QMix software. And so I got so used to that. And when, when I realized that not every interface has that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's a deal breaker, so I have stuck with interfaces that have that the entire time. Some of them only allow for like one zero latency mix, or four, or something like that. Personally I think every interface should have the ability to create separate zero latency mixes for every output, otherwise I wouldn't even consider it. So when I need to adjust a level of an input on someone's headphone mix, I just open up the Lynx control mixer, and I click on their mix, which is named, and I adjust the fader. It's that simple. Now, some of you might be wondering, okay, that's great for input signals, but what about the DAW output or click track, right? Now, there are a few ways to do this within most DAWs. If you had, say, four headphone mixes, you could send your master bus to four separate auxes and then dedicate those to specific outputs. Now, if we're talking about Pro Tools, the master bus is one thing. I'm talking about if your master bus is actually made from an aux and then you can do sends from that aux. And you can make four separate auxes, mix A, mix B, mix C, mix D, whatever, and you could send whatever you needed to those auxes. That's really common technique for making headphone mixes. And those auxes are dedicated, you know, to those specific outputs. Now, I actually elected to do this a different way, and it works really well for me. What I do is I send my DAW output out of channels 29 and 30, and my click output out of channel 28. So, these are playing back at Unity at all times, so my fader's at zero on these. And these outputs loop back using a physical cable, like they go out and back in to my interface on channels 28, 29, and 30. So those channels are basically taken up at all times. Now that means they come up on the Link's mixer. So when I need to adjust the DAW output, I just adjust it on the same panel that I adjust their inputs, and same with the click. So my mix, the click, and the uh, you know all the live inputs all come up on the Link's panel. It's kind of like the same theory of why do we use direct boxes for instruments so that everything is now coming in at mic level, right? You try to create some sort of unified system. So I do the same for my inputs. So my DAW and my CLICK loop back in and come up as an input on my Lynx mixer. Technically, there's a little bit of latency doing this, but it's so minimal. I think it's about four or five milliseconds And it doesn't really matter because their live inputs are zero latency and the click and the music are perfectly linked up. So it's never really been a problem. for example, if a guitarist is tracking in the control room and they're listening over speakers, then they're going to be standing back and to my left, which is about seven feet from the speakers. So that's going to be about six or seven milliseconds of latency between them and the speaker, right? So that's more than even what their headphones have. So even if that's, you know, even if it is noticeable, I could just lower my buffer size, really. If somebody actually complained about it, I could lower my buffer and drop that to probably half. But realistically, because of the work of Helmut Haas, we know that most humans cannot detect discrete delays that fast. You know, now most musicians can feel delays of like 10, 20, 30 milliseconds for sure, especially pianists, right? They can feel it. But you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find any musicians that can feel or detect five milliseconds or four. That's really quick. I mean, that's a very natural distance, right? Like, standing six feet away from a guitar amp is not that weird. And nobody seems to ever complain about that. So, that little tiny bit of latency in the headphone mix is so minimal. And again, their live input, what they're actually playing or singing, it's totally zero latency but it's just the music foldback that is delayed. Music and click. So what about talkback? Well, I get a lot of questions about this as well, and I'll admit I'm a bit spoiled because I'm a Steinberg user, and Steinberg DAWs like Nuendo and Cubase have a built-in talkback feature. So I have a microphone plugged into channel 27 that is always my talkback, and Nuendo takes exclusive control of this input, When I turn on the TalkBack using a key command, it will dim all of my mix outputs, or whichever ones I set it to dim. And that includes like my output, or the headphone outputs, the click output, whatever ones I want, and my mic then comes through over the headphones. So it's the same outputs, it's, you know, uh, 28, 29, and 30. The same ones I use for click and DAW mix, my TalkBack will come over those. And that's how I use it, and I love it. It's very simple, it's very effective. Now, it won't dip the input signals, but it will dip down the foldback. Now, at first, I thought this was going to be an annoyance, right? Like, I thought it was going to be bad that it didn't dip their signal. But the more I've used it, the more I realized it's probably better that it doesn't dip their signal. I would rather it dip, you know, the click and the track rather than them. Especially if I just come on the talkback really quickly. I don't want it to necessarily dim them down because it will mess them up, right? Now for other DAWs, it's not so simple. When I'm working in Pro Tools, for example, I have to do this a different way. What I do in that case is I set up a channel as a talkback channel that is always monitoring, and it's sidechained to my QSend bus. So I have a compressor plugin on my bus that is sidechained to the talkback input. Now the talkback is not going to my master, it's muted, but it's doing a pre-fader send into that bus and then it's being side to that compressor. So when I talk, it will dip down the headphone mixes. Again, it won't dip down their live inputs unless you know I'm making the headphone mix within the DAW, but if I'm using the Lynx mixer in my normal setup, it will only dip the DAW output and or the click. Now you might be thinking, do you just like stay really quiet and not keep your speaker volume loud so it doesn't turn down their headphone mix or that your talkback is always on? No. I built a little device that I use to plug into my patch bay to turn my talkback mic on and off. Now, they make devices like this, and they're very affordable. It's literally just a switch. Let me explain. So, my talkback mic comes up on the patch bay, which is all TRS, and by default, it will normal into channel 27. So, if nothing is plugged into the patch bay, my talkback mic goes straight to the interface. Channel 27, always. But I built this little box that has a pair of cables that plug into the patch bay. And all it is, is a push button switch with a light. And it disconnects that channel when, uh, you know, so the signal does not pass. So a cable comes out of the patch bay, into the box, which is wired to a switch. That switch is a sort of momentary switch, as they call it. And that switch is normally closed, meaning it does not connect to the other side. So when pressed, the switch connects, it turns on a light and the signal flows to the output jack. And I just use a little battery inside, because it's just an LED, and that's the only thing that needs power. And so a 9-volt battery is going to power that thing for years. Uh, And again, it will still work without the light. It's just handy to have the light. So when I press the button, my talkback mic continues back to the patch bay, which then goes to the interface. And it triggers the sidechain compressor within Pro Tools to dip down the headphone mix, which allows them to hear me. All right, now... (laughs) All this being said, there are many ways to handle TalkBack. The UAD console has TalkBack options, you know, especially if you've got one of those particular interfaces. I think it's the Apollo Duo or, you know, the one with the big knob in the center uh, that goes on your desk. In fact, many interfaces have TalkBack functions built in. Personally, I think all of them should have some kind of solution. And I also think DAWs should have a solution. I mean, it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I love Steinberg and Nuendo The talkback function just makes all of this easier when I'm working in Nuendo, and I'm really surprised more DAWs haven't implemented it. So, thanks, Steinberg. Now another question I get is, what about monitoring a reverb for a vocalist? Or what about if you're using virtual instruments? There are things that you have to monitor through the DAW. So in my particular setup, this is one of the catches, because it does get a little more complicated. So there are a few different ways I can do this, but let's talk about the reverb first. I can open up an audio channel, turn the monitoring on, turn the fader all the way down, and do a pre-fader send to any of the reverbs that I may have in the session. I can also just, you know, create one and there it is. But the catch with this, of course, is that it goes to all of the headphone outputs. So if I wanted to do something different and only send reverb to one person, I would need to create output busses or auxes within Nuendo and make sure the reverb was only on that one which was going to that same specific set of outputs which I can do, it's just a little bit extra work the same goes for if we're using virtual instruments and everybody in the band needs a different amount of that instrument so if I was using like a virtual piano I would have the MIDI coming in through my DAW it would go into the virtual instrument and then I would have to create different sets of outputs for each of my headphone outputs rather than use the piano going through my main DAW mix output 29 and 30 I would create separate outputs that would go to each mix individually and not go to my master bus so that means I would even have to create an output for myself if I wanted to hear it so it does get a little complicated when you do need to monitor through the DAW the reverb is pretty quick And most people aren't bothered if the vocalist wants a little bit of reverb. Most people don't mind because it's pretty subtle anyway. But it does get a little annoying when doing a virtual instrument. So that is one of the catches of my system. But for all other things, it works great. So, you know, just wanted to bring that up and admit there are some flaws. Now, if I'm recording a virtual instrument here in the control room and it's just one person, we don't have to do any of that. We can just monitor right from the DAW, they can hear it through my speakers or through headphones, and we're good to go. I don't have to do any weird routing or anything special, but it does get a little complex when we have lots of different headphone mixes going simultaneously and people need different amounts. Okay, so finally, I'm going to explain my headphone system top to bottom to hopefully help you understand how it all connects. Let's recap. All of my inputs go into the patch bay, which then go straight to the interface. I use a Lynx Aurora N32, which has 32 inputs and 32 outputs. I use outputs 1 and 2 for my mix. 3 and 4 is the back bus. I use output 28 for click, output 29 and 30 for my DAW output. Both of those loop back to inputs 28, 29 and 30. All of the inputs come up on my Lynx mixer, which is a zero latency or near zero latency mixer, which I use to make mixes for each output. Outputs five and six, seven, eight, all the way up through 16 are my headphone mixes, A, B, C, D, E, F. These six stereo pairs then output of my interface to six different power amps. I have Crown D75s and Samson servos. They take balanced XLR or TRS inputs, And again, they have padded down TRS outputs right on the front. So from there, I use a TRS to XLR snake dedicated for the headphones that goes out of the front of the headphone amps into the live room and terminates as XLR jacks in a little box. And again, it's a dedicated snake. It's not the same one as my mic inputs, and I highly recommend that. I then connect XLR cables to the headphone snake, which go to the distribution boxes. And again, it's just like a TRS cable. It's carrying left and right, and then a ground, right? A three pin, just like TRS. And it goes from the box to the distribution boxes, which just has an XLR input, and it also has an output, so you can chain multiple boxes together. It has a volume control, and it has TRS outputs for their headphones. I can control their mix from my end, and all they have to worry about is their master volume, So in terms of gain staging, a lot of people ask me about this as well. This is how we run it. We set the power amps to about 80 or 90% max volume. And it really is just so I can have a little flexibility in adjusting left-right balance if needed. But for the most part, they're pretty much all the way up. And then the headphone distribution boxes are set to about one o'clock. And then because I have full control over their mix using the links panel, I can set all of their volumes from there. So just like when using studio monitors, we set the amplifiers or the speakers, in this case, really loud, and we send it a quieter signal. That gives us the most headroom possible. So what's coming out of my DAW is actually not that loud. A good starting place for music, uh, for just normal program music, that I'm sending them is negative 20. And keep in mind, this is at this point, an unmixed, unmastered song. So it's negative 20 on my fader, but the actual level is probably more like negative 30 because the mix is not, you know up at zero or something like that you know the mix is pretty dynamic at this point because it's not mixed so what they're actually getting into the power amps is a pretty low signal but i know that negative 20 on my fader is a decent starting spot for music where it's not going to be too loud or too quiet they'll be able to hear it so that's my starting level and that's something that you know i've just learned over time for my particular setup it might be different for yours you know This seems to give me the most control. It allows the player to have room to turn themselves up or down uh, on their master volume. It allows me to drive the amps hard, but not super hard, and it allows for plenty of headroom on the system so that I'm not pushing a loud signal into those headphone amps. It keeps them punchy, it keeps them from clipping, and they don't distort. You know, this is the way I've been running my headphone system for almost 10 years. You know, it's not perfect, but it generally works. It has tons of headroom. People rarely complain about it. And if they do, it's usually not the system's fault. They probably just don't like the particular headphones they're using. So that's my first go-to when someone's like, "Uh, I don't really like my headphone mix. My headphone mix sounds bad or it sounds weird or whatever. It's usually the headphones, right? So we'll swap out to a different set of headphones, and 90% of the time that fixes the problem. Now, they don't really have to mess with their headphone mix, and we kind of just set it and forget it, right? Like once we get a good headphone mix, they're generally happy for the rest of the session. Now, that being said, especially when tracking live bands, we make sure and allocate a good amount of time to getting headphone mixes dialed in. Sometimes 30 minutes, an hour even, to make sure everyone is happy with their headphone mix, especially in a large band, six, seven, eight people. It's really important because good headphone mixes will translate to better performances. And again, I make sure to make sure everyone's happy. I go listen to them to double check. Sometimes people have, you know, not even told me, but their headphone mix was really noisy on one side, or they were only getting signal on the right, and they didn't want that, and they didn't even know what to ask for. I know it seems obvious, but it's a good reason to go check ...all of the headphone mixes, just briefly, and just make sure, do these sound okay, you know? Every now and then, the power amp system, you know, they'll get a little bit noisy, they'll need to be replaced, or, you know, some filter caps need to be replaced. Sometimes a side will go dead, we'll have to switch it out for another amp. But generally speaking, they're rock-solid and way cheaper than buying individual, you know, quote, headphone amps that are 500 bucks a piece. For example, you can buy a Samson Servo 120 used for about 150 bucks. Now, unfortunately, the crowns are getting really hard to find, and the price has shot up a lot. They're like three or four hundred dollars, which is not worth it, okay? So for new replacements, I've been using the Samson servos. The only downside with the Samsons really is that they're heavy and they're huge, which versus, you know, the crowns, which are really lightweight, they're only about a nine-inch deep rack unit. The Samsons are like oddly large and heavy. Uh, so that's a little bit of a pain. So shipping tends to be a little more expensive, things like that. But regardless, they work and they're affordable. So hopefully that helps you get a better understanding of headphones and headphone systems. I know it can be complicated. I know there are a ton of variations out there, but you really don't have to spend tons and tons of money to get something that will work. My whole system is pretty self-contained, right? Like, my interface is the bulk of my system, just making sure that it's routed creatively and correctly that gives me what I need. And assuming that all six of these headphone amps are running around, you know, let's say $150 to $200, that's a total of like $1,000, $1,200 to get all of these headphone amps. The Snake only cost about 100 bucks to build. The headphone boxes are about 50 bucks a piece or maybe a little bit more. Uh, you know, again, there's lots of different ones out there. Don't spend a lot of money on those. They're very simple devices. So total, I mean, we're talking probably $1,500 for the whole system. Um, it's more about how it's implemented, uh, to, to use it creatively without having to, you know, go through some of these crazy $7,000 headphone systems with mixers and th- things like that. And the system works great. In fact, most clients like not having to mess with their mix, It's actually less of a stressor for them when they can just show up and their mix sounds pretty good. I mean, they're happy. They don't want to have to go in and create a new mix for themselves. You know, that's a real pain. That's another thing I'll mention is that if you do have one of those systems, I highly recommend kind of getting them to a starting place before the clients get there. Because you don't want them to have to make a mix from scratch every single time. And you don't want to have to teach them the system every single time. Anyway, I hope this was helpful. I hope it gave you some things to consider. If you have any questions, please send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions. Like I said, this episode was requested by many of you out there, so I always try to listen to those requests. Please send it my way. Also consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Check out patreon.com slash recording lounge to learn more. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.